The following message is by Pastor Andrew Beto, pastor of First Baptist Church of Orchard, Texas. More information on First Baptist Church Orchard can be found at fbcorchard.com. All right. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Jesus, God, thank you so much for the blessings that you have given us this morning. Thank you for life and breath. Thank you for this church and this home. God, I ask that you would watch over us this morning, that you would help us to know what it is that we need to be studying, what it is that we need to be thinking about. God, we ask that you would watch over us and guide us this morning, or that you would be with me as I speak, and if there's anything that I'm going to say that I shouldn't say, that you take it out of my mouth, and if there's anything that I need to say that I'm not saying, Lord, that you put the words there. Lord, we ask these things in your holy name. Amen. There is a story that is circulating on the internet. It's one of those things that you see on Facebook that is most likely not true, but whatever, it's still funny. And the story begins with the captain of um, a ship talking over the guard frequency to another ship. Um, And he says, uh, this is a U.S. Navy ship. Uh, You need to alter your course by 15 degrees. And the guy on the other end says, no, you need to alter your course by 15 degrees. And the captain says, no, no, you don't understand. I'm the captain of a U.S. Navy warship uh, you need to change your course by 15 degrees this is the uss abraham lincoln we're a nuclear powered aircraft carrier we're part of a battle fleet that has six cruisers and we'll take countermeasures if you do not move immediately and the guy on the other end of the line says i'm a canadian lighthouse do what you need to do Sometimes we have to choose our battles. Sometimes, sometimes you have to choose the battles that you're going to fight. As Christians in a hostile world, we find ourselves in the place of being almost constantly at war with everything around us. And we have to be wise about the battles that we fight. In our story this morning, Jesus is going to face a situation like this. And it's instructive to learn from him the way that he dealt with this nearly constant conflict. Now, if you guys remember, we've been talking about Jesus. We're in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus has done some amazing things. We're at the place in the story where Jesus now is beginning his trip down to Jerusalem. Okay, so if you guys would turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew We're in chapter 17, beginning in verse 22. So we're in Matthew chapter 17, verse 22. As they were meeting in Galilee, Jesus told them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised up. And they were deeply distressed. And when they came to Capernaum, those who collected the double drachma tax approached Jesus and said, or approached, approached Peter and said, 
doesn't your teacher pay the double drachma tax? And Peter said, yes. And they were, when they went into the house, Jesus spoke to him first and said, what do you think, Simon? What do earthly kings collect tariffs and taxes from? From their sons or from strangers? From strangers, he said. Then the sons are free, Jesus told him. But so we won't offend them. Go to the sea, cast a fish hook, and take the first fish that you catch. And when you open its mouth, you'll find a coin. Take it and give it to them for me and you. This is one of those weird passages in Scripture that we find in the Gospels where you read through it and you go, huh? What? Like, what? What is God trying to tell me with this? Like, I get the whole, yes, go fishing. That's right. You're absolutely right, Nick. God wants you to go fishing. He wants you to get your boat fixed so you can take me fishing. Like, well, what, what is he trying, what, what am I supposed to draw from this? Like, well, what, what does this say to my life? Like, I, this is one of those instances, I was talking to a family this morning and telling them that I preach expositional sermons, book by book through the Bible. And the reason I do that is because if you don't do that, then you skip over parts of scripture like this. Like, if, it, if I was during my scripture time on Monday trying to figure out what I'm going to preach for the week, I'd be like, yep, we're not going to do this one. We're going to go ahead and move on to something about tithing or something like that. You know, something, something that I can, I, can, I can deal with. And so we've got to dig in to the scripture here. We've got to try to pick this apart to figure out what exactly God is trying to give us. And the way that we do that, the way that we address this is we look at what does the text say and why is it where it is in scripture? Okay, so to begin with, we got to get a little bit of background on what exactly is happening here. The disciples are gathering in Galilee, right? They're, they're coming together in this upper area of Israel, and they're getting ready to start beginning their journey down into Jerusalem, right? They've talked about who Jesus is. They've acknowledged that he's the Christ, and now they're preparing to go down. And Jesus has told them at the very beginning, he tells them that he is going to be turned over to the chief priests and that they're going to kill him. And on the third day, he's going to rise, right? This is the message. This is like the third time that he's told his disciples this. And now they're not fighting him about it. They're not saying, no, no, Lord, don't do this. Don't go down there. You don't need to do this. They're saying, wow, we acknowledge that this is true and it makes us sad. So that there's, a, there's a level of acceptance here. And so then as they begin to get together, they're in Capernaum, this place that Jesus has been doing his ministry for the last two years. He is, this is the place that he's been, he's been building up his followers and training them, the base that he's been operating from. And so from this place, they're getting ready to leave. And in the midst of all of this, in the midst of this deeply, deeply emotional, traumatic time, the collector of the two drachma tax comes and starts asking Jesus about the temple tax. Now, to understand what this is, you have to understand that at this time in Jewish life, every single Jew throughout the entire diaspora, when I say diaspora, I mean all of the Jews that lived in Israel and all of the Jews that lived all over the rest of the Roman world. So Jews that lived in Babylon and Jews that lived in Rome and Jews that lived all the way around on the north coast of Africa, all of them were responsible for supporting the temple. And so every small community would get together and there'd be one guy there whose job was to go and collect the two drachma tax. 
And this was a tax that was levied on every Jewish male that had come of age. Whether you were rich or poor, flush or bust, you had to pay the two drachma tax. Now, what that equaled to, when you start looking at it, two drachmas equals one half of a shekel, right? Which means nothing to us, right? I don't pay my, I don't pay people in, in shekels anymore. But what a shekel was, a half of a shekel was two days labor for a normal guy. So if you figure a guy who's making a minimum wage, it's about two days labor for him. And so this guy would go around and at the beginning of the year, he would make this assessment and you bring in your two shekels and you give it, or you give your half shekel to the, to the tax collector and he'd collect it all in a bundle and they'd send it off to the temple in Jerusalem and that's how they would be able to function. The interesting thing here is this, this tax is actually being collected. They're asking Jesus about this about six months after the tax would have been due. And so we get kind of this, this, this interesting approach that this guy makes to, to Peter. It, he's, kind of, he's kind of polite and kind of different. He's like, hey, um, I don't know how to say this, but um, you guys are kind of behind. Does, I mean, does your boss still pay this? I mean, he, he still pays it, right? I mean, if you look at it in Greek, it's this, it's this, he's asking a question that he presumes he knows the answer to. And it's hard to, it's hard to pick that up in the English, but, the, but it's very clear. He's, it's like he's saying, your, your boss pays this, right? With the, with the unspoken thing, like, if he pays it, why haven't you paid it yet? You, you really need to pay it. And, and Peter, who has no reason to believe that Jesus doesn't, which leads us to believe that Jesus has been paying this, Right? Jesus is a good Jew. He pays the, two, the, uh, the half shekel tax. And Peter's like, yeah, of course. Yeah, we pay it. We haven't, we haven't paid that yet? You, seriously, you didn't pay the water bill? Like, really? Like, that didn't go through? And so he goes to Jesus and starts asking him about it. The interesting thing here is that this is a critical component of this Jewish life, this cultural life. And why did Matthew put this here? Like, why is he, why is he describing this or dealing with this issue now? And what we have to realize is that in this part of the Gospel of Matthew, we're having all these changes that have occurred, right? We've, we've made the change from, from Matthew being about why, who Jesus is, right? We've established Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. We know that, right? We know that because he's done miracles. He's done amazing things. He's told us that that's who he is. His disciples have declared that that's who he is. And the people around him have said, well, no, we don't think that's who you are. And so we've already established this, this tension within the community that some people are going to say that he is and some people are going to say that he's not. And we've moved. Now we've moved to what are the implications of Jesus being the Messiah, the Son of the living God? And what, what does that mean? And so we've gone through a couple of chapters where we talked about, about who, the who the church is supposed to put their faith in, right? How, how, what the church is supposed to believe, how the church is supposed to deal with this reality of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And so he's changing now. In, in the midst of Jesus now going down to Jerusalem to be killed, we're going to get a series of teachings that Jesus gave his disciples on what it means to be the church. 
right? How to live out the reality of Jesus being the Messiah, the son of the living God. See, we can say all day, I believe in Jesus, right? I, I believe in Jesus. I've accepted Jesus. But if it doesn't change our behavior, then it's meaningless, right? I, I can sit there and go, I believe in Jesus as I'm cheating the poor and defrauding people and robbing people and but does that really have any meaning to me? Well, you, what you've got to realize with Jesus is that Jesus is always and will always be about belief causing action. Right? The way that you know somebody believes something is that they act on that belief. Otherwise, it's just words. And so Jesus begins to talk to the disciples about what belief in the Messiah, what the belief in Jesus as the Son of God, what that actually means in the way that they conduct themselves. And so Jesus uses this, this insignificant little thing, and he uses it to teach a lesson. So if we continue in, in verse 25, when Peter came into the house, Jesus spoke to him saying, What do you think, Simon? From, who do the ki- from whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons? And when he said, from, or from others. And Jesus said to him, the sons are free. Now I want you to understand what he's saying here. He is trying to explain, he's trying to get Peter to talk about how taxes are collected. Okay? So at this time, there was no IRS. They didn't have an IRS at this point. Most countries, the state was the ruler. Okay? So if you were the Roman emperor, all of the people in your household were like the federal government. So you had like this great big household, and that's what ran the government. Okay? You didn't tax your family members because the understanding is I'm going to take, if I'm the king, I'm going to take Nick's money so that I can use my household to be able to do the things that government needs to do, right? My troops are going to keep the roads open. We're going to make sure that pirates don't do the things that pirates do, right? The, The leader doesn't tax his own family because the money is supposed to go to the leader's family in order to keep the country safe. And so Jesus is asking, who do the leaders of this world take taxes and levies from? And and Peter says, well, from other people. He doesn't take it from himself. And, And that may seem kind of silly to us, but I want you to think about this. The federal government doesn't tax itself. Like if you're a part of the Department of Agriculture and you have a budget, you don't have to tax. The, the, the federal government is going to come to the Department of Agriculture and take some of its money because that would be dumb, right? The money has come from the government to the Department of Agriculture. We all on the same page here what he's talking about? He's saying the government does not tax itself. The reason he's saying this is because Jesus is the Son of God, right? The temple is God's house. So God is taxing his people to pay for his house. I want you to understand what he's saying here. He's not saying that this is a bad tax. He's not saying that the, federal, that, that, the, that the Jews should not be taxing people to support the house. But he's saying, I'm the son of God. Why should I pay for my own house? Why should I be taxed to pay for my own house? And Peter's like, well, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Right? You don't have to pay this tax. Jesus is establishing the fact 
that he does not have to pay the tax. Not just that. He's saying that the followers of Jesus, Jesus' followers, his brothers and his sisters that he has brought into his family, into the family of God, are like the royal family. They are part of God's household. And so they do not have to pay the temple tax either. This is a really profound statement on the part of Christ. It is indicating not just that Jesus is God's son, but that his followers have become sons of God by their association with Christ. By extension, this invalidates the sacrificial system. Jesus is making this point that there is no longer a need for the temple. Now, this is something that he has said in many other places. He has declared himself the temple. He has declared himself the true sacrifice. Hebrews will go on and say, For it, it was indeed fitting that we, should not have, that we should have such a high priest, holy and innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, for he is his own for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered himself. Jesus will ultimately go down to Jerusalem. He will be the sacrifice, the one sacrifice that all the previous sacrifices have been pointing at. He will be the thing that guides us into the presence of God, a presence of God that will live inside each believer and not inside one house that is, that is established. Okay, he has placed himself above this tax and says, I don't need to pay it. Now, I want to be very clear here. This is not a blanket exemption from Christians for tithing. Right? This doesn't mean, hey, I'm a son of God. I don't need to support God's church. Please don't think that. I'm begging you. I got to pay my house payment, okay? This is about Christian freedom from institutions of Old Testament religion. This is about Christians no longer being tied to the establishment that was before. He's saying Christians are free not to be bound. Tithing is a different principle, and it comes from the idea that a person should offer their first fruits of their labor and possessions for the service of the Lord. A lot of you guys, a lot of Christians nowadays do not think that they need to participate in the support of God's ministry. That they're free to spend all their money on themselves, all their time on themselves. And that is not at all what Christ is saying. Jesus is God's son and his followers have become part of God's household. And consequently, they are no longer responsible for the upkeep of the temple or maintaining the temple sacrifice. That's the point. But then the interesting thing happens. See, the point of this story is not the freedom of Christ's followers to thumb their nose at Jewish tradition. It is the fact that Jesus pays the tax anyway. I want you to, I want you to examine that. Jesus pays the tax anyway. He says, then the sons are free, Jesus told them, but so we won't offend them 
Go to the sea, cast a fish hook, and take the first fish that you catch. And when you open its mouth, you'll find a coin. Take it and give it to them for me and you. So that we don't offend them. Now, this is Jesus, who has absolutely no problem being super offensive. Right? Like, one of the most offensive things that a Jewish person can do is to claim to be God. That's, that's actually the most offensive thing you can do is claim to be God. And Jesus had no problem claiming to be God. So we have to understand that Jesus is not like this super sensitive guy. He's like, oh, I don't want to step on anybody's toes. And I just want everybody to be okay with me, and I don't want to be offensive. There is something else that is going on here. He did not pay this tax because he was a coward. Jesus had confronted the authorities. He had scandalized them with his claims. He had offended them with his criticisms of their life. He was on his way to Jerusalem to overturn the tables in the temple, to take the people that collected the money and throw them out and hit them with a whip. I mean, he, he has no problem doing these kind of things. Jesus was not a guy that was super worried about offending people. And so we got to ask ourselves, what is going on here? What is he trying to tell us? To understand it, we've got to kind of dig down a little bit. Jesus says, so that they will not be offended. That's the way it's translated here, but the word is scandalismo, and it means to cause someone to sin, to throw a stumbling block into somebody else's path, something that's going to make them sin. Jesus is telling Peter to pay the tax so that their actions will not cause unbelief in someone else. Jesus pays the tax because he doesn't want people to say that he is opposed to the sacrificial temple system. He pays the tax because he doesn't want his rupture with the Jewish authorities to be, to be based on something stupid, like a two drachma tax. If Jesus paid the tax, he would be putting himself in the same position as the zealots and some of the other people that were trying to violently overthrow the government. At the end of the day, Jesus was choosing his battle. Right? He's going to go down to the temple, and he's going to be killed. He's going to fight a battle, but he's choosing which one he's going to fight. He is choosing to forego his rights and his privileges for the moment for something larger. And I think this is the point that we have to come to. See, Jesus was free to do whatever he wanted to do. But Jesus' freedom was limited by his love for the people around him. This is key. Because as Christians, so often we think of ourselves as people of principle. We are people of principle. We stand on our principles. Right? But guess what? Your principles are not more important than Christian love. Your freedom in Christ is not more important than Christian love. Your freedom in Christ does not absolve you from the responsibility to the people around you. See, sometimes I think Christians can become so tied up 
in this role as being people of principle that we become obnoxious jerks and we fight battles we don't need to fight over things that don't ultimately matter. See, in the economy of God's kingdom, the love of neighbor is more important than the freedom of our principles. The Christian is not a proud individualist standing as a bulwark, right? We like to think of ourselves like, we like puff our chest out like, whatever, man. I'm just going to offend everybody, I think, because that's what Jesus would have done. He'd have offended everybody. I'm, I'm, I'm tough. I'm a tough guy. I'm hard as nails. I'm like Hub. I'm hard as woodpecker lips. Right? I'm going to go, go whoop a bear with a hickory switch. I'm a Christian. It's the way we like to think of ourselves. But that's not what a Christian is. A Christian is a person who places his love for the people around him above his freedom in Christ. Right? We have freedom to do all kinds of things. But we are constrained by the love for the people around us. And that love is far more constraining than any law. See, that's, the, that's the paradox in Christianity, right? We, 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 sometimes we think, oh, well, you know, we're, we're not people of law anymore, and those laws are... You know, they, 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 they tied us up in knots and all this kind of stuff. But if you really think about it, love can constrain you far more than law. Love forces you to go beyond the letter of the law. Law forces you to give more than what you're supposed to give. Love can be a heavier burden than law ever could. See, often Christians use their principles as an excuse for being stubborn, proud, and self-satisfied. We use our principles as a way of acting out against people that we don't like. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because every person in here has done it. Where we pick a fight with somebody and we make it about a principle. When the reality is, it's we don't like the other person. We just don't like them. We don't like the way they look. We don't like the way they act. We don't like the way they smell. We don't like the things they say. We just don't like them. Or maybe some of you guys have it, but I have. <laughs> we use Christian principles as a way to shield actions that are anything but Christian. Now, I, I want to be very clear with you. There are two Christian principles. There's only two of them. You ready? Love the, God, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength and all your skill. Love your neighbor as yourself. Everything else hangs on that. So everything else should be governed by that. Christian love does not mean the denial of the truth. Don't hear me saying that you have to soft sell the gospel or not call sin, sin out of a desire not to offend people. Jesus does not deny the truth when he pays taxes. Indeed, he attests to his divinity in the way that he pays the taxes, right? Cast a fish hook into the sea, pull out a fish that's got some money in its mouth. 
Throw it down. Ah, there's your tax, you filthy animal. Jesus never denies the truth. But he constantly sets aside his prerogatives. Right? Jesus is God. He is the effulgence of God's glory, the exact representation of God on earth, and yet he allows himself to be hung on a cross. He doesn't say, oh, I'm not God. He says, nope, I am God. Go ahead and string me up. Stab me in the side, and I won't crush and kill every single person here. Setting aside your prerogatives out of love for somebody else is called forbearance. And that's what Jesus is teaching us here. He's teaching us that sometimes you are absolutely right, and it doesn't matter. And I know nobody out here knows what that's like. Definitely nobody who's married. You know, I, that's the key to a happy marriage, guys, is knowing sometimes you're right and knowing that it doesn't matter. Every, I mean, some of the worst fights I've ever got to in my life have been when I've tried to get my wife to admit that I was right. <laughs> Man, that, that's like nuclear war. Nobody wins that fight. Even if she admits that I'm right, it, I still, it's like, oh, well, I guess you're right. Well, whew, man, I, oh, man, well, I didn't win nothing. Where's my, <laughs> this wreckage, this smoking pile of wreckage behind me. I'm like, I'm right. I stood on principle. And I succeeded to win a place on the couch. Like, what am I winning here? Christian love does not mean the denial of truth, but it does mean choosing our battles. It does mean setting aside our prerogatives. It means not enforcing our rights. See, we pick our battles because souls are more important than principles. When I'm dealing with the people around me, the fact that I'm right and that I have a right to something is not more important than that person's soul. And so like Paul, I will be all things to all men so that by all means I might save a few. So that I will not cast stumbling blocks in the way of another person reaching Christ. You know, there are people who are going to not be saved. But I'm not going to be the reason that they're not saved. I will sacrifice myself to show them the love of Christ while still telling them the truth about who they are. <clears throat> you know, I think sometimes when people say, oh, Christians are not loving, Christians are not loving, Christians are, are angry and bitter, I think that we can pull the teeth of those arguments if we would invest our time in people. There are people out there, I, how, what would it be like if somebody said, you know, I don't agree with Christians, they're crazy, they believe in stupid things, but man, that person loves me like it's nobody's business. <clears throat> There's never been a time in my life that I needed something that that person wasn't right there. That crazy whack job Christian who believes crazy things held my hand while my mother died or took me out for a cup of coffee when I needed somebody. It's hard, though. It's hard. 
We pick our battles because souls are more important than principles. And we pick our battles because love is more important than freedom. Love is more important than freedom. All things are lawful to me, but not all things are profitable. All things are open to me as a Christian, but I will not indulge in all things. Because there are some things that are bad for other people. We pick our battles because love is more important than freedom. And because sometimes the fact that I'm right has nothing to do with the argument that I'm having. Ultimately, brothers and sisters, we pick our battles because we know that in the end, we know how the battle ends. I think sometimes we stand on our principles because we are so mad that things aren't fair. We're like little kids on the playground. You ever seen the little kid runs up to you and he's like, it's not fair, it's not fair, so-and-so did, doesn't. Like, life's not fair, buddy. Learn it. Learn now. If you're looking for life to be fair, you're chasing a pipe dream. Life is not fair. I hate the fact that Christians are the butt of every joke that Hollywood makes. I hate it. I hate watching things where the Christians are always the weirdos. I hate the fact that in our culture, a transvestite is more trusted than me because I'm a Baptist minister. I can't ride in a car with one of my campers by myself because this world does not trust me. I hate that. I hate it. But guess what? It doesn't matter. Because life ain't fair. And at the end of the day, there will be a day when all things are made right. And we have to believe that. Right? We have to believe that there will come a day when all things are made right. I, I don't have to level the scales. I'm not responsible for leveling the scale. Somebody else will level the scales. No matter how bad somebody offends me or hurts me or punishes me, something, somebody else is going to take care of that. That's why Christians don't take vengeance on other people. Because vengeance is about leveling the scales. And we don't have to do that. Here, here's the simple equation, guys. Somebody hurts you bad, kills a member of your family, does something terrible to you, one of two things is going to happen. That person is either A, going to be saved by the grace of Christ, in which case Jesus himself paid for their sins. And if Jesus paid for the sins, you can't hold it against him. Or number two, they're going to go to hell for eternity. And there ain't nothing you can do on this earth that's worse than that. All sin, all injustice gets paid for. You want to know what happened with the two-shekel tax? 30 years after Jesus died, the emperor Vespasian rolled into Jerusalem. He burned the temple to the ground. He took all the gold off, broke everything up, took a pile of rubble and piled it on top of the temple mount, killed everybody in the city, crucified people all the way from Jerusalem to Rome. 
disperse the Jewish population so that they would never again be a nation for 2,000 years. They weren't a nation. And he leveled a two-shekel tax or a half-a-shekel tax on every Jewish person in the kingdom to pay for the upkeep of the pagan temple that he built on the ruins of the Jewish temple. Everything comes around. Every injustice gets balanced out. As a Christian, as a follower of Christ, we have to understand that just because something makes us mad now doesn't mean that we have the right to act in a way that is not loving and forbearing. Because the guy that we follow gave up every right that he had for every one of us. So the, the question that you have to deal with today is this. What battles are you fighting today that you do not need to be fighting? What petty offense have you allowed to destroy your relationship with the people around you? What aspect of your pride drives a wedge between you and the person that needs Jesus? You need to pick your battles, guys. Because Jesus picked his. You need to pick your battles because love is more important than principle. You need to pick your battles because we have one mission. And it is to go into the world and make disciples of all men, teaching them everything Christ has commanded, baptizing them. That's the mission. And if it detracts from it, you need to let it go. <coughs> Love is more important than principle. So choose your battles wisely. Bow your heads with me, please. Dear sweet Jesus, God, give us the wisdom to choose our battles well. God, make us fearless in preaching the truth, in proclaiming who you are and what your standard is. God, make us fearless in the friends that we make, in the people we associate with. God, give us a heart to help those who don't look like us who don't sound like us, who don't smell like us. God, give us a heart for your people and a desire to share your love with the people of this world, even the ones that hate us. God, give us the forbearance to give up our own rights in our marriages and in our workplace with our children and with strangers off the street. God, help us to be a people that love so radically that people see you in our actions. God, I ask these things in your holy name. Amen. In a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation. If you have never accepted Christ, if you have never experienced the love that changes everything,
the forbearing love of Christ who died on the cross for you, if you've never experienced that, come forward. And we'll tell you how that can be yours. If you don't have a church home, if you don't have a place that helps you grow, come and talk to us. It may not be this place. It may be someplace else. But we want to make sure that you get into a church where you can grow and become a family. But either way, make a decision today. Don't put it off. Don't put it off.